Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Good evening, I'm Morgan Colt, and this is, In the News, for March 25th. Our top stories tonight. National medical costs have dropped, and food technicians are taking credit. Scientists find less expensive ways of making healthy food. When companies can produce quality food cheaply, there's no point in substituting it with ingredients that can lead to health issues. It's estimated that the improvement in quality of available food saved the American people $2.5 trillion in health costs last year. Shots were fired at Florida Senator Groover as he rode in an armored caravan. This is the third time that threats were made on his life. Will this be known as the era of ugly babies? Comedian Maurice Houdinot thinks so. We ran a fact check on his latest stand-up and many indeed undergo some kind of permanent cosmetic alteration, hair removal, hair transplants, breast augmentation, height lengthening, but augmentation, nose jobs, and facial symmetrization. Expecting parents may be in for a few surprises. The newborn may have that unibrow that daddy had altered in his youth. All that may change with legalizing germline editing in many states. In liberal states, embryo screening has been legal though often vilified. Screening has reduced inheritable diseases. But the new upper middle class wants more for their offspring. A popular gene therapist Betty Martin puts it this way, we know a lot more about DNA and how it works. Our AI named Preconstructor can analyze DNA and find safe ways to reduce chances of baldness, shortness, and many other conditions that may impact the child once they've grown. Germline editing has been a contested issue from its inception and many conservatives want it universally banned. The economy continues to divide as companies must choose sides. Major retailers allow shoppers to filter out products offered by companies whose political values they don't agree with. Across the nation, dentist offices are closing. Your local family dentist may join other vestiges of the past such as grocery stores and parking lots. Two out of three offices have closed. A leading cause is, probiotic toothpaste now contains engineered microbes that remove plaque, feed off of harmful bacteria, break up stuck food particles, remove stains, repair damaged tooth surfaces, and treat irritated gums. If you floss and use this kind of toothpaste, you may never need to go to the dentist. One thing the toothpaste can't do is straighten teeth. Is rural America making a comeback? With the rise of remote data farming jobs, many are moving to the country. They may not see fields and cattle ranches outside their windows but many prefer the forests and grasslands. And finally some news about a beverage many can't start their day without. Coffee has seen its second disruption in the last decade. First, indoor farming has allowed for local growing, causing traditional exporters to go out of business, and now engineered yeast that produces coffee has surpassed sales of coffee beans drinks. Coffee lovers call it mushroom coffee and they sing its praises. 
In Mel and Debbie's living room, the carpet has endured the growing up of five kids and numerous pets. Cheap trophies, crowd shelves, crosses, printed prayers, and framed family pictures cover the walls. A parakeet cleans itself in its cage in a corner. Mel stands, legs and arms spread, head facing up, wearing old VR shades. Debbie sits on the couch near her wheelchair, also wearing shades and looking up. She says, it's a level 3 devil. Mel says, should we go after it? Debbie, hefty with fine black hair, says, no, let's let it go. This one flies to the library. It'll spawn devils there, but we don't have high enough levels to fight it yet. Mel walks in place. Hey look, that kid is climbing out of that window. Debbie rocks her feet, left, right, left, right. She says, go, he gets teen girls pregnant. Mel says, this is actually fun. When did I get you this game? He walks in place, bends, and picks up an invisible object in both hands. Debbie says, right after the media attack, I hope you like playing it. They're playing Make It to Heaven. In the VR, they walk around a small American town. On a residential street lined with fully grown trees and Victorian houses, Mel walks around looking at things and Debbie follows. Both their avatars are youthful and slender with big innocent eyes. The color vibrancy is bumped up on everything. Red, white, and blue flowers sway in a flower bed nearby. Green leaves cast light blue shadows. Bluebirds fly overhead. Fluffy white clouds slowly traverse the blue sky, and the sun is bright. Green lawns in all the yards are cut to the same height. Mel's avatar wears a fully buttoned and tucked-in shirt. He moves exactly like IRL Mel moves, which makes Debbie laugh. Mel sways when he walks, and his feet shuffle like an old man. His left arm moves less than his right due to a car accident he was in years ago. Debbie as a rosy-cheeked waifish femme wearing a dress printed with pastel flowers, smiles. Though the face is different, Mel recognizes his wife's smile, and a shiver goes down his spine. Her avatar walks with a generic gait. The game interprets her foot rocking as walking. They walk on the sidewalk along a white picket fence. Kids kick a ball to each other in the street. Two women wearing dresses sip from mugs and talk on a long, covered porch. Debbie points excitedly. There's one. She jogs across the street. Mel follows. Where, from inside a sidewalk mailbox, a devil with pointy elbows and long, sharp fingers hoists itself up. Its horns smoke. Teeth like the tips of arrows jut out from its crooked smile. Debbie says, do as I do. She puts her palms together. Mel does the same. They pray at the devil. It hisses and wheezes. Its snake-like lower half emerges as it comes closer. Debbie says, pray harder. Mel moves his hands forward and back at a quicker pace. The devil wriggles, hisses, and changes color. Its eyes open wide, and with a puff of smoke, it vanishes. Mel says, that wasn't too hard. Debbie says, 
look at the score in your upper right. Your chance of getting into heaven went up. Mel says, oh wow. Avatar Debbie places her hands on her waist. Near the end of the game, we go to the pearly gates so you want that score to be high. Mel says, oh wow. They stroll around finding demons and praying them away. It's fun when they find a demon in a person because after they pray a demon away, each person recovers differently. The sullen cheer up, the lazy get up and get hired at nearby businesses, and the troublemakers become obedient and helpful. They find a group of kids wearing all black who litter and spray paint satanic signs on buildings. So they follow and pray at the youths, causing one girl to lose a demon. When that happens, the girl's black turtleneck and jeans turn into a teal dress, and she skips away saying, I've got to go. Youth group is about to start at the church. Under an overpass they near a homeless man. Debbie says, follow us, we have food for you. The homeless guy averts his eyes. Oh yes, yes yes, they walk to the church and he follows. Taking the alley. They bring the homeless guy to a door behind the church. Debbie says, in there. The homeless guy walks in. Ten seconds later he steps out spruced up. He says, I have given my life to Christ. I'm on my way to find a job. See you during service. Mel says, oh, we got a lot of heaven credits for that one. Debbie says, look, we leveled up too. We reached level 3. They call a group together around the outside of the library and pray. The level 3 devil shows its head through the roof and screams at them. It lunges at them but eventually climbs out of the library and flies off, its barbed tail snapping like a whip. The group goes into the library and looks for books with baby devils nested in them. They take the books out of the library, pile them on the road, and set them on fire. Hundreds of nasty little devils hiss at them and fly off. When a librarian storms out of the building, Debbie calls Mel's attention. See her? She's the head librarian. Mel says, ooh, and she has a level two devil in her. The sinister woman wearing pants and sporting a page boy haircut stomps down the road. Mel says, should we pray at her? Debbie says, no, just wait. An auto taxi drives down the road and picks her up. The pastor amongst the crowd points and shouts, look people, Satan's messenger is leaving our town. Everyone laughs and cheers. They go with the group to Main Street to picket a Planned Parenthood and pray at the Femmes visiting there. A devil shaped like an artichoke emerges from Planned Parenthood and howls at them. Soon, it vanishes in a burst of flame. Three sinister spinsters, they wear tags on their wrinkled shirts that say spinster run from the building looking ashamed. They jump into a bot cab and the pastor congratulates the crowd, we did it. This den of sin will close. A young girl with a showing belly walks toward Planned Parenthood, sees the group, and hurries away. Debbie says, oh, let's follow her. We can level up by dealing with her. Mel and Debbie follow the girl down an alley. Debbie says, 
She's on her way to the witch who gives abortions. Debbie shouts, Police! Police! A police car comes down the alley, and two policemen handcuff the girl and take her away. Debbie says, See, our scores went way up. Mel says, What about the abortionist? Debbie says, She harbors a boss demon. We have to level up first. Most kids in the game run in packs, but Debbie spots a lone boy walking with an exaggerated swishy gait. She says, if we let him grow up, he'll make boys in the game act like girls and girls act like boys. Mel says, how's he do that? Debbie says, by walking by them. Come on. He follows her to the boy and they pray at him until a level 3 devil squeezes out of his ear, jeers at them, and flies off. The boy's chest puffs out, and he walks like a tin soldier. He joins the nearest group of kids throwing a frisbee in the street. Debbie says, our lucky day, there's the science professor. On the other side of the street, a hunched man with a crooked frown slinks down the sidewalk clutching a globe. Mel says, oh he looks like what's his name. The guy on TV always telling people to get vaccinated. Debbie says, hurry, we could get a lot of points for getting rid of him. They follow and pray at him, and when he tries to talk to young people other faithful join in praying at him. He tries to smile at the young and entice them with his globe, but the prayers call a devil out of him. When the devil shows itself, the professor moans and scampers away. Two men walking side by side approach a cake shop. Debbie says, hurry. We can't let them go in that shop. She runs and Mel follows. Mel says, do we pray at them? Debbie gets in front of the men and pushes them away from the shop. She says, no time. We can't let them in. Trust me. They push the men away from the shop until they continue down the street. Mel asks, was that Adam and Steve? He follows her to a cafe where she pulls down a rainbow flag and a trans flag. She says, when we level up we can get this cafe closed. This is where kids turn into Satan worshippers. Mel says, I wish. I wouldn't mind living in a town like this. Debbie says, there's a QAnon mod for this game where you can uncover Democrats drinking babies' blood in the pizza parlor. Mel says, wow. How do you add a mod? Outside Kansas City, Mel and Debbie hang on. In 2044, he takes his food truck out for the last time. In 2046, neighbors disappear from their semi-rural, semi-suburban neighborhood. The neighbors could have moved or died. The surrounding houses show neglect like a broken window on one and a slumping roof on another. Grass and brush take over yards. Hardly anyone uses the roads anymore. Mel looks for work. When he tries to get tech jobs in the city, they give him tests, and his thinking gears come grinding to a halt. He and Debbie buy an aquaponics kit from Giantess and set up an indoor garden in the basement. In the evenings, he walks around hunting for anything besides stray dogs and cats. The couple eats snake, rabbit, fox, duck, and sometimes deer.
His two dogs also help him chase off the occasional coyote or bobcat. He meets the three nearest neighbors, the few who remain all elderly like Debbie and him. Their houses are long walks from his house. The storms of 2047 demolish most of the buildings and beat their house to hell. Mel spends a lot of time salvaging scrap and repairing his house. The region succumbs to what grows into woods. In 2048, realtors stop by asking to buy their house. They all offer market rate which sits at the bottom of house prices in the country. One realtor asks, don't you want to move to an area where other people live? Maybe a place with a local church? Mel says, those places will cost more. We can't afford to move up. This is all we have. The woods are cleared. The debris that used to be houses is cleared. At first, he thinks it has something to do with the deep mine rigs. Giant vehicles dig down and bots put up wire fences around his property and up and down the road. Blimps come and go. One morning on the back porch, Debbie says, I think they're dropping garbage. In 2049, Mel is 61 and Debbie is 57. Mel comes in through the front door. Debbie says, get anything? Mel says, no. I was thinking, if I find a buyer for my food truck, maybe we can buy one of those mechanical stomachs like your cousin has. Debbie looks up at him from the couch and says, that sounds good. They eat rabbits too and greens. After dinner, he takes the two bloodhounds for a walk down the road. The garbage piles have been growing. He can't see the change on a daily basis but they're higher and more spread out than last week. A silent blimp glides down and hovers. Doors fall open on the underside, garbage falls, and a second later he hears the crash and pattering. The smells have all changed. He misses the forest even though it was only here for a few years. His evening walks used to be in the shade but now the sun shines in his eyes and heat wafts off the road. Maverick, the older hound, runs ahead but the neighbor's house is no longer there, just a tall composite wire fence, a dirt cliff, and mud puddles far below where mass amounts of garbage will settle. On the other side of the country in central Idaho, in a van that drives through the night, a man with a sweaty neck kneels next to a boy who sits on the floor. The boy holds his left foot out as the man uses powered gear cutters to split apart the ring of the boy's connect link on his ankle. Luckily none of the passengers has one of those canal links. They'll have to figure something out the first time someone wants to enter the country implanted with one of those. Maybe they'll find a doctor or vet to dig them out. The cutters were as the blades close around the band. The boy watches unwaveringly. Ten minutes later with a snap, the blades fully close and the band falls away like a piece of a snake. The man tosses the link in a box containing other broken links, and he moves to the next person. The van arrives early in the morning at a three-story house next to a tall fence that stretches four miles. Two men wearing jackets, stiff with strips of bulletproof shielding, climb out of the side door and beckon seven migrants to the house. Inside, people sit or lie on the floors. 
Most sleep, but some sit up near the glow of camp lights. There are no house lights and the windows are boarded up or covered over. A middle-aged woman meets them at the door and in Spanish says, There's no room. Go to the next house. One of the men says, There are children. The woman says, No room. We can't take them. As sky cranes and blimps fly over the rubbish dump lands, the two men hurry the migrants down the road to another three-story house. They usher the group inside where addicts in every room lie bent on the floor. The migrants gather near the door, reluctant to go deeper inside. The men apologize. One says, we'll find a better place for you soon. The travel-weary parents and children search for open spots to settle down and rest. Upstairs in the attic, a young-looking man, Marvin, lies in a drug stupor. As morning light grows brighter, a breeze washes over him so softly it feels like a cool blanket. In his head, he says, Who art in heaven? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Sunlight through the window intensifies, and the house heats up. In the afternoon, Ruth the dealer walks through the house. Peeps stir and empty meager accounts to buy pleasant or crushies. Marvin overhears her outside his door. With a raspy voice, she says, I'm sure you smelled a body. The woods are crawling with pecks and drifters. I saw three bodies on the way here. The door cracks open and Ruth calls in, Marv, want anything? He clears his throat and says, nah. Tomorrow? She answers by slowly closing the door. She's never known him as an old man. While the other addicts have open sores, bruising, swelling, and too many medical conditions to go into, Marvin is the only one who looks okay. He's dirty and drugged. He's way too skinny, and his teeth are in bad shape, but he's not losing his eyesight or having trouble walking like the others. In fact, he stayed on at this house longer than anyone else. Everyone else has had to get pulled out and disposed of somewhere. At 9 p.m. when the sun sets, people in the house rise and pull themselves together. Many wear interactive solar clothes that don't work because they haven't paid the subscription. The house has gotten crowded as Pexin users turn to harder sedatives. The pleasant addicts turn to skin and bone, their skin hanging loose, wrinkling where it gathers. They live in perpetual brain fog. Crushy addicts deteriorate faster. They fall apart. Finger joints loosen, skin splits creating open sores, and internal bleeding leads to death. A group of pros with guns and flashlights walk through the house calling out, If you want to work, we're leaving now. We won't wait for you. Marvin puts on his shoes and grabs his axe. He says under his breath, Lord God, daily bread, Lord God, daily bread. The total body pain rages in the distance. Pleasant has tuned out his feelings along with sensations. A line of addicts follows the armed pros outside where the wind blows hot. Three vans wait. Marvin shuffles behind others toward one of the vans. 
As he nears a ditch and can look into it, he realizes he's looking at a body lying sideways. The young face looks misshapen. Dry blood coats a knife in one hand not far from a deep gash across the neck. The big guy that Marvin shares his room with points at the body and says, he looks like you. Marvin shakes his head and says, nah. A femme stops and says, his clothes are pricey. He's wearing AR glasses. He must be pexin drifting. She and another femme climb down into the ditch and go through the dead man's pockets. Marvin continues walking, and before he steps into the van he looks back. The first femme looks up, and she's wearing the glasses. Marvin boards and sits on the rubber mat with the others. The doors close and they ride in darkness, sometimes on paved roads, sometimes on roads that make the van buck. They stop on a broken and overgrown road, a tall fence on one side and strange trees on the other side. As Marvin climbs out of the back, a man hands him a durable sack. The groups from the vans come together, illegal migrants and addicts. A stout woman points and many look up at a tree where a body hangs. Someone mutters, Pexen drift. A middle-aged man wearing new, clean clothes stands before them and says, Now look, I've arranged for you to work in one area but don't go too far. Landfill security is no joke. If you wander off, I can't help you. You risk your own life at that point. What you're looking for is electronics, old phones, circuit boards, anything that can be plugged in or run on batteries. If you find something like a robot arm that you can't carry on your own, find help and get that dragged back to the van. He reiterates in Spanish. The people in dirty clothes nod. Some have heard these directions countless times. One by one those holding sacks pass through a narrow gate door on the fence. Mounds of garbage tower above them. A line of cones about 30 yards apart lead them deeper into the landfill. They trudge over sometimes perilous terrain, between mounds and over them. In the distance, legged dozers and giant roller tractors rumble all night. Searchlights sweep the mounds but never pass over the group. Some brought tools, a metal hook, a large screwdriver, and a fireplace poker. Those who've done this job longer make quick work of locating electronics and filling their bags. The scavengers spread out. Marvin keeps an eye out for places where a lot of electronics were thrown out at once. He puts distance between himself and the others. It's best when he can work out of sight of the others. If and when one of them drops, he leaves them alone. They may get up. When they don't, sometimes he runs across them a following night and keeps moving. It's a relief to see some of the addicts finally die. He knocks garbage aside with his axe. The smell is half pleasant, half unpleasant, not unlike farm smells. He avoids areas with bad smells not wanting to uncover dead bodies again. After only half an hour of digging he spots a lucky find. Pushing over a microwave with a missing door, he drops the axe and grabs a gun from the spot he just uncovered. It's plastic composite which is good. Guns with metal parts are rarely any good. It's wet. 
He wipes it with the sack and hides it in a bag hidden under his shirt. With a smile, he picks up his pace. Next, finding an old computer, he smashes it open and pulls out its innards. Jorge will be pleased to see the gun. If a scavenger brings him 20 working guns, he can make a deal with a local gang leader and get fake US citizenship, one per 20 guns. If Jorge finds this gun works, Marvin has five more guns to a new identity. He has a valid US identity, but it says he's 80. The first smart camera to see him would throw up an alert. Later in the night, he finds a wooden box. Only one person inside has her back turned to him as she brings a brick down on the backside of a wall TV. With his axe, he pushes damp papers off the durable box. Heart beating faster, he drops the axe and pulls the box out, minding not to tumble down the slope. After undoing two latches, he lifts the lid and jumps back and falls. A head with gaping holes for eyes rests in the box. He stumbles to his feet and climbs away covering his nose with his sleeve. Near daybreak, when the van drops his group off, he walks into the woods while everyone else returns to the house. In the woods, people live in the remains of deteriorated buildings. He walks a trail that passes through a courthouse with mostly missing upper floors. Sediment from the floods cakes the floor where grass and even small trees grow surrounded by cracking walls. The trail takes him down what was the middle of a street. He passes lost souls, people who may have done fine for years on Pexin but now go on the run. A woman sitting under a tree rocks back and forth pulling at her hair. She wears super stylish clothes like she just hosted a dinner party yesterday. After passing a few more building remains, he enters the front of a townhouse with a caved-in upper floor and back half. As non-threatening as possible he calls out, Jorge. Behind a door covered in a few panels of carb weave a hard voice calls back, who is it? Marvin says, a scavenger. The door opens and a man with hair sticking out like wings on both sides eyes him. He wears thick gold necklaces and a fat gold watch. He says, oh howdy, howdy. Got something for me? Marvin pulls the gun out and hands it over. Jorge turns the gun over, slides the top off, clicks the trigger, and looks down the barrel. He says, not bad. Marvin says, that makes 15. I only need to bring you five more. Jorge says, well the number is now 40. Marvin grunts. Jorge says, some kid is bringing in at least one or two guns each day. I don't know how he finds so many, but he's getting all his people IDs. He's a migrant. They stick together like glue. Marvin says, but you know that means I'm stuck at least another year. Jorge says, I feel for you, but I don't have enough IDs. I can't give you what I don't have. Marvin drops his head and turns to go. Jorge calls after him, sorry guy, I really am. Marvin hasn't had a hit all night and the pains in his joints grow sharper. So he picks up his pace. A man with no facial hair and a shimmering shirt trips through grass moaning loudly with a mouth that won't close. 
Marvin leaves the path to avoid the newcomer. To think that last year Pexen still worked for the man. When Marvin gets in the house, he pushes past people to get upstairs. On the second floor three search through the clothing of a fourth. A femme digs a bottle out of the deceased's pocket and rattles it. Marvin says, What's that? The femme turns the bottle over and reads, Noi. Nuplis. Marvin says, What's that? The femme shrugs. She says, Want it? Marvin says, Sure. She tosses the bottle to him. Pills rattle when he catches it. A man digging in the deceased's breast pocket pulls out a baggie of crushy rocks. He hops and says, Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. And hops away pursued by the others. Marvin gets to his attic room where morning light comes in the window. Of the four others in the room, three soon curl up lost in drug-induced states. One femme in the corner rocks back and forth, staring coldly at Marvin. Her bushy eyebrows and super pointy chin remind him of a character in a movie about dragons he once saw. He pulls the baggie of pleasant out of his sock, crushes half a pill, fries it, and shoots it in his vein. After 10 minutes of losing his ability to think straight to a wash of vivid colors and sounds, he breathes with quivering lips and enjoys freedom from pain. He takes the bottle out and turns it over to read the label. He says out loud, me, who? Plus, the femme mumbles, don't take those. They'll drive you crazy. He reads out loud, cog. Nor, tive, in, haunts, burr. He pops the cap and taps until one pill falls into his palm. The femme says, you just dosed. If you take that now, you're committing suicide. He stares back at her as he pops the pill into his mouth and swallows. She smiles and sneers at him at the same time. She says, goodbye then. Have a nice ride. For half an hour he feels nothing. Then all at once everything he pays attention to has so much more meaning. Dozens of things that he must have known make themselves clear in his mind. Lots of smells blend together, but one smell comes from something that was burned. Some distant part of him was aware of that, but now the very center of his awareness takes note. The woman sitting across from him has the slightest of accents. He must have always known that, but now he thinks about it. She must have lived in the Middle East. She treats others bitterly to hold them at bay. He reacted to her bitterness wordlessly before, but now he can put it into words in his mind. Before, days and weeks smeared together into a thick fog to be forgotten, but he knows he'll never forget all the sharp-edged details he's paying full attention to now. And this is when half a syringe of pleasant should make it hard for him to remember his name. And for the first time, thinking itself rises to its own kind of pleasure. He chuckles. Is this how Malcolm X felt when he read the dictionary cover to cover? The femme's bitterness runs so deep. He begins to say a prayer for her but stops. Saying a prayer is like casting a spell. It occurs to him that God is magic, and he never could believe in magic. Science works, microwaves, 
connect links, and bot taxes, but prayer never leaves its vacuum. If things go the way you want, God did it, and if things don't go the way you want, the devil did it. It's a mind game. If prayer worked, all the believers should be rich and all the faithless should be poor, but that isn't true at all. His mom prayed all the time and she died poor. The mental ground shifts beneath him. What'll it mean not having that giant invisible man lurking in the background? Part of him feels relief not needing to keep up the charades anymore. It took a lot of work pretending God was real. All the rituals make it seem real. He doesn't need to lie to himself anymore. If God were real there would be no need for constantly propping up faith. The femme stares at him. She wants to be the first to search him when he dies. She looks at him like he's already dead. Will he die? People die when they drink a torp after shooting up. What was he thinking when he took the pill? But he was supposed to die years ago. He checked into hospice. In his retirement, he used a cane and then a walker. Anyone else would die. He changes his posture and finds more comfort. With a jolt, he receives his second revelation and leaps to his feet. The femme falls to her side, throws her arms up, and stares wide-eyed at him as he grabs his axe and marches out of the room. The bright light temporarily blinds him. The street looks deserted as he crosses it to the ditch. The body is still there. Perhaps this man did look like him. They're both black, but they're also both tall and have strong jawlines. Marvin pulls the man's left leg to a better angle, checks to see if the connect link is there, and brings the axe down on the knee. The blood and dust clouds in the stark light make Marvin nauseous even with pleasant soaking his veins. The man's pant leg resists the blade. Once the lower leg is chopped through, he can pull the leg out of the pants. He grabs a plastic bag among other pieces of litter and drops the leg into it. Leaving the axe under the body, he walks into the woods. When he reaches the townhouse, he has to knock and call Jorge for ten minutes. Finally, Jorge opens the door with half-closed eyes. Jorge says, man, what are you doing? Can't you see it's the middle of the day? Marvin pulls the leg out and shows the conic link on the ankle. He says, here's my new ID. Jorge says, what's gotten into you? Have you switched to crushies? Marvin says, if it's payment you're worried about, I can get you more connect links. I can bring you a few more today. You said yourself you don't have enough. Jorge slumps and says, come on in. Jorge uses a special tool to open the connect link and relock it around Marvin's ankle. He then puts the leg under a radio wave scope until he finds the key chip near the foot. With an exact blade, he digs the tiny chip out from under the skin and drops it into a dish of cleaning solution. With tweezers, he loads the chip into an insertion pen. Marvin lifts his leg and rests it on a table. Jorge brings the pen down on Marvin's ankle with a stabbing motion. The pen clicks loudly. Jorge hangs a hook-shaped charger on Marvin's new connect link anklet. 
Jorge says, you didn't bring an OS, did you? Marvin says, what's that? Jorge says, do you have glasses? A foldable? Okay, I've got shitloads of foldables around here. Hold on. Let's set you up and find out who you are now. As Jorge digs through a box of tech junk, Marvin says, I could bring you a lot more connect links. Jorge says, who are you? Why are you all up in my face? He fires up a tablet, pairs it with Marvin's anklet, and says, the connect link is trying to get online. Let me fire up the server simulator. Looks like your new ID is a Griffin White. He's 26. How old are you? Marvin says, I'm 80, but people say I'm in my 20s. Jorge says, man, you're nuts. Do people say that? Cause you're insane. Thank you for listening. I will never run ads on this podcast. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is n20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.